Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'll say this again in the larger speech, uh, larger podium, but um, uh, I'm an enormous fan of your rabbi. Um, um, you know, I, uh, I speak, I speak, you know, I speak sometimes in different shuls around the place, places, but um, it's rare, really rare, that you meet someone um, like Rabbi Yochalovich, um, both in here, his his deep commitment to Jewish Jewish literacy and his commitment to to to, to human dignity and and equal rights. Um, it's a, it's unfortunately, it's a rare combination. Um, so I get, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes, not too long, because I'd just be interested in, in kind of having more of a conversation. But I guess Shmuley and I um, decided that I would say a few things about what's happening inside the Democratic Party on the subject of Israel, um, which has been in the news a fair amount recently. Um, the Democratic Party is undergoing a, um, a series of, of really fundamental transformations. And those transformations are also transforming the debate inside the Democratic Party on Israel. Um, and so I think there are three transformations that are particularly important in, in order to understand how the Democratic Party's debate over Israel is changing. The first is that there's a generational change inside the Democratic Party. There is a, a generation of younger Democratic politicians who have um, a much more progressive, even kind of radical view um, of a lot of things than older Democrats did. Older Democrats tended to be you know, pretty okay with capitalism, but felt like it needed to be moderated and made a little bit more just. We now have a generation of younger Democrats, along with Bernie Sanders, who's an older one, but, but, but generally they tend to be younger, who actually proudly identify themselves as socialists, partly because they don't remember the Cold War, and partly because their experience with American capitalism since the financial crisis has been really, really rough, and they've become very disillusioned by the whole model. Um, and a group of people who've come of age at, without the sense that um, the Republican Party plays fair and by the rules, but this sense among younger Democrats that whether it was Bush v. Gore or, two or Donald Trump winning the presidency without winning the popular vote or the impeachment of Bill Clinton, that, that you have to play rougher because the Republicans don't play fair. And so a lot of the red lines that used to govern the limits of Democratic Party discourse are being blown out of the water, whether it's talking about universal health care or free college uh, or, a, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, or big increases in the tax rate. And that's also happening on Israel. Israel was also kind of one of the things where Democrats talked within certain limits. They might be a little bit mildly critical around the edges, but basically... The fundamental thrust was, we support Israel, we support the Israeli government, pretty much mostly whatever they're going to do, we're kind of behind them. Um, and this younger generation um, 
is more open to challenging that, is less uh, than the older generation, partly because of the different set of experiences they've had. They not only don't remember things like 1948 and 1967 when Israel seemed you know, on the verge of, of being destroyed, but they don't even remember Yitzhak Rabin or Ehud Barak, uh, prime ministers who seemed like they genuinely were trying to create a two-state solution and were interested in people. They basically only really known Benjamin Netanyahu, right? Um, and so they see an Israeli government that they believe is pretty much committed to uh, entrenching its control over millions of Palestinians who lack basic rights. And it's also a younger generation of Democrats that is much more, much, where people of color are a much larger percentage of the Democratic Party in the younger generation. They're a larger percentage of America than, than in the older generation. Yeah, um, and that also has produced a sensibility that I think has a more of a sympathy with Palestinians as another group of people, people of color, that people kind of can identify with their experiences more. And so you see this with people like, you know, most famously with people like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, but with a lot of, lot of other Democrats who are not getting as much attention. So for instance, if you look, interestingly, if you look at a lot of states where you have two Democratic senators, um, what you notice um, is that the younger Democratic senator tends to be to the left of the older Democratic senator when it comes to Israel. Again, it doesn't necessarily make the news that much, but if you look at Ben Cardin versus Chris Van Hollen in Maryland, for instance, or Ron Wyden versus Jeff Merkley in Oregon. Um, uh, you tend to see that, again, that, by and large, it's the younger Democrats who um, have had a different perspective and are more, at least more aligned with J Street than with APAC. And in the House, we now even have the emergence of some who are a little bit to the left of J Street, which never really existed before up until very recently. The second thing which is changing things in the Democratic Party is that campaign finance is changing. Would you say that one of the reasons that the, way, that, that the kind of American Jewish establishment, APAC and other groups, have, have wielded influence, and there's just nothing, there's no shame or secret about this. This is the way American politics works, right? Which is if you want to have influence in politics, you raise money for politicians, right? That's the way every group does it. There's nothing, there's nothing pernicious about it. It's just the way American politics has always worked. You need to raise a lot of money. And traditionally, you've raised that money through relatively small numbers of high donors. And APAC has played that game really well. The Jewish community has played that game really well. So have lots of other industries and communities, but it's been a source of influence, right? And the Palestinians on the other side kind of have bubkis. I mean, they're not really like raising a lot of money for politicians, so it's kind of a pretty unequal kind of playing field. But what you're seeing that started, it started even with Howard Dean in 2004 and then with Barack Obama and now with people like Bernie Sanders is that Democrats are finding that they can raise very large amounts of money through small donors across the country if they manage to really catch fire with people. And that is actually meaning that people don't necessarily, Democrats can think about how to run campaigns without really needing to pay as much attention to any organized lobby group, right? Maybe the pharmaceutical industry, it may be the fossil fuel industry, but it also is the establishment Jewish community, right? Which is that you don't necessarily rely on them as much for funding your campaign. And that's another thing that has kind of led some younger Democrats to be able to be willing to say, you know what, I don't really feel like I have to pay attention so much to what groups like APAC think because I don't really need their money. I can basically raise enough money with, through the internet with small donors. The third shift um, that's taking place is that 
the model um, that it used to, that we are in a highly, highly par polarized political era, if you haven't noticed, in which Democrats and Republicans find it really, really difficult to agree on anything, and more and more really, really dislike one another. Um, and the the de and the model of APAC and the organized American Jewish community was bipartisanship. It was basically the Democrats and the Republicans were going to agree on everything, and it's become and it's become harder and harder to sustain that bipartisanship, that sense that Democrats and Republicans can agree on anything, as the two parties' bases and their value propositions have become more and more dramatically different. And I think a big part of, and on the Israel question, one of the big contributors to that has been Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, because Benjamin Netanyahu is such an American figure, right? I mean, he speaks, of course, perfect English. He seems like sometimes you know, he could be the Republican senator from New York. You know, he's such a familiar figure. But in some ways, it's precisely that familiarity that makes him so polarizing because he comes across to many Democrats as essentially a Republican, not even like a foreign leader, but basically like the version, you know, he's the equivalent of Dick Cheney or now the version of Donald Trump, right? He has a very long history of connection to the Republican Party, and he's done a series of things which are fairly, appear fairly partisan, Republican. Um, and so what that has meant is that it's become harder for Democrats to feel like they identify with the Israeli government, and it's led them to a more and more kind of critical and alienated position. Um, this has particularly happened um, in, um, with African Americans and the Congressional Black Caucus, um, who I think have particularly been alienated by the, their perception that Netanyahu was hostile to, to Barack Obama. So I think one of the things that we, one of the, and I think the consequences of this alienation for the debate inside Washington on Israel will probably be felt for a fairly long time to come. So for instance, one of the things that I think happened, if you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, Ilhan Omar, the newly elected congresswoman from Minneapolis, made these comments where she said something, she talked about kind of like allegiance to a foreign government. A lot of Democrats, Republicans, but Democrats as well, and the Democratic leadership got really upset, and they introduced uh, a, a, a piece of legislation that was not going to name her, but basically was going to be kind of condemning her. It was led by a couple of Democrats who are pretty close to AIPAC, Elliot Engel from, uh, uh, from New York and, and Ted Deutsch from Florida. And they introduced it on Monday. And what I think they would not expect was a really, really strong pushback from the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, and I think part of the reason that the Congressional Black Caucus pushed back so much was a lingering bitterness and animosity, now Ilhan Omar is part of the Congressional Black Caucus, that has to do with the experience of feeling like Barack Obama, the first black president, was mistreated by Benjamin Netanyahu and by his allies in the, in the organized American Jewish community. So one of the, re I think Netanyahu has done a lot, and he's done a lot to make Republicans who are already pro-Israel even more pro-Israel. Right? It was not uncommon during the Obama era to sometimes hear Republicans, when they would hear Netanyahu speak, they would say, oh, if only he were our president, right? if only we had a president like that. Right? So Netanyahu has increased Republican sense of connection, because you think about what are the values that Netanyahu represents. Right? It's, it's the free market. Right? It's, a, it's, a strongly, it's, a, it's a strong respect and kind of for religious faith and religious tradition. It's a strong reliance on, mili on, on military strength. It's a kind of a belief in the importance of sovereignty, right? These are all things that Republicans want to see embodied in the United States. So Netanyahu, I think, has brought out even stronger sense of pro-Israel sentiment among Republicans. But on the other hand, he's kind of alienated a lot of Democrats. So Democrats would say, 
This is not, this Israel that he represents actually is the vision of the America that we don't want. We don't want an America that we feel like is dominated by religion. We don't want America that relies on the military. We don't want America that builds high walls between us and other countries. We actually, so Israel has become in a way almost a kind of a vision of either the America that people want, more often than the Republican Party, or a vision of the America that people don't want. And so Netanyahu has also contributed to the fracturing, which is one of the reasons, I think, actually, that if Netanyahu loses in the upcoming elections, almost no one will be happier than AIPAC. I think AIPAC will be overjoyed if Benny Gantz defeats Benjamin Netanyahu, precisely because Benny Gantz would not be so polarizing, right? You would not have an Israeli leader who was identified with the Republican Party. You would have an Israeli leader who seemed much more like he could appeal to both sides. And I think for AIPAC, you know, whose conference is, uh, I guess, concluding today, for AIPAC, which is built on bipartisanship, right? The whole point of AIPAC is that the Democratic leader and the Republican leader in Congress come to AIPAC and basically give the same speech, right? Like, that's, uh, that's the point. That, that, that Netanyahu has made that much more difficult, and that, um, that, that if Gantz were to come into power, that would make it easier for them to try to restore this bipartisan consensus. So why don't I, I'll stop there and just happily, you know, uh, answer any questions or respond to anything that anyone would like to say. Please. One of the things that's tearing at me, and I'm sure yeah. a lot of us, is the latent anti-Semitism that we are feeling and then the overt that we are mm. seeing. Mm. It's, it's reminds me when I was a little girl and Germans tried to beat me up because I was a Jew. So mm, that, mm, that was mm, here in the United mm, States. Mm. So now all of a sudden I'm sticking out louder and stronger mm, than I ever have. Mm, standing up mm, for being Jewish mm, and standing up mm, for Israel's mm, right to mm, be herself. How do you experience that? Like, like wh what are the things that you've seen in your that have happened in your own life? If you don't mind me asking, like in your own life or that you've just seen more broadly that have that have made you feel that way? I hear a lot of Jewish jokes that I didn't hear before. I see things being posted by people I thought were, um, if anything, neutral. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that I, that they question, it seems the old tropes are coming up. I guess mm. that's what mm. I'm mm. seeing. That's interesting. It's very, very ugly, and of course you can't talk politics with anybody mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that's just asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For trouble. Yeah. And we don't want trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's really interesting. That's really that's really interesting. You say I mean disturbing. Um, I mean, um, I think there's no question that um, anti-Semitism uh, is there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism. Um, um, and I think it's, it's complicated because anti-Semitism, one of the things about anti-Semitism is that it, it, it morphs and it can take lots of different forms. And it's often somewhat incoherent in the sense that one of the things about anti-Semitism is that Jews often get blamed for totally contradictory things. Like Jews are often you know, blamed for being capitalists who kind of you know, control Wall Street, but then they're also blamed for being communists, right? Who are, who are trying to overthrow the country, right? This, they're, they're blamed for kind of, um, uh, and, and I think that, um, we're seeing different kinds of anti-Semitism which is emerging. I think the anti-Semitism on the right that I think we're seeing emerging has to do with a fear that the traditional in America that some people um, uh, kind of romanticize, the kind of, you know, the America when America was great is being lost. 
And a lot of that sense is it's be, there's a lot of feeling that's being lost because of, of immigration and demographic and cultural change. And how do Jews come into that? I think there's a sense, you certainly saw this with the, this, the, this horrible guy who, who shot the synagogue in Pittsburgh, that people feel like the Jews are part of the people who are bringing the immigrants in, right? So it's almost a kind of like a, a bank shot. It's like, we're upset that all of these Mexicans are coming in, but how are they getting here anyway? Maybe George Soros is behind it, or in the case of the Pittsburgh guy, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Because maybe they, they do have a little bit of a sense that Jews tend to be more sympathetic to immigrants, given our own history. So that's one flavor, I think, that we're, that we're seeing. Then the other flavor is a, um, comes out of a sense that Jews are oppressors, right? Um, maybe they're oppressors in the United States because, they have, because they're considered to be wealthy and white, and that they're also oppressors in Israel, um, and, that, um, and that there's a, some kind of conspiracy to keep African Americans down and, and Palestinians down, and that, um, and that they do it because of their money and because of special influence. And, and so you see that rising on the left as well. And I think um, you know, the challenge is that um, I think there is a legitimate space to criticize Israel and to speak about Palestinian human rights. I think it's important. But it has to be disassociated from <coughs> conspiracy theories about Jews. Um, uh, and it has to be disassociated from a sense that Jews are not loyal to the United States. Um, and on the right, you can have a legitimate argument about how many immigrants the United States should, should bring in and what the right immigration policy is. But it has to, again, be disassociated from these conspiracy theories that I think lead to, uh, lead to demonization and can lead to very dark places. Um, go ahead. I think we all see the rising anti-Semitism. Mm. But do you see it in context of the rising <coughs> level of general hate Mm -hmm. and discontent. You know, we had Pittsburgh, yes. but we also had Charleston. Yes. We also had the Rural Baptist Church in Texas. Right. We also had the mosque. Right. And, and, and not that anti-Semitism right. isn't a little different, right. but is this part of a whole dynamic yes. in, in yes. this country as well as in the Western world? Right, yeah. Yeah, I th absolutely. I mean, part, so what's, what's fueling it? Partly is this sense of very rapid cultural change. Um, um, that has leading a lot of people to feel like, you know, the, the countries that they remember or the countries that they mythologize are no longer the same anymore, which is very frightening to them. And then which is those anxieties are then fueled by, by media. You know, it, as, you know, in reality, actually, immigrants are less likely to commit crime than native-born Americans, right? But if you turn on Fox News and other places, basically, you would, you know, you would think that you're literally, it's too, you'd be too scared to walk outside of your house because an immigrant is going to do something terrible to you because in these often, these really, kind of, I think, kind of grotesque ways, there's just kind of this, this obsessive focus on, on crime. And you, it happens in Europe, too. Um, and, um, it, you know, it's actually one of the things that I found most chilling for a story I was writing recently is this, this notion of demonizing people by... Um, by focusing on their and, and then kind of amplifying the crime that they commit as opposed to the crimes that other people commit is something that the Nazis did as well. There was actually, it's in the Nazi newspapers, there was actually a special column called Jewish Crime. So basically, if any Jew had committed a crime anywhere in Germany, basically they had a mechanism and they would basically find out information about that. And even if it was some small little piddling thing and then kind of amplify it to give this impression that Jews are these kind of predatory figures. And I think, tragically, we see some of that. We also see um, a lot of uh, social isolation, I think, um, that's happening. Um, you have 
family, you have often people living far away from their own extended families, people who've lost connections with community. A lot of the institutions that used to create community uh, have broken down. One of the interesting things that they've started to find, for instance, in studies in the United States is that middle class Christians, middle and upper class, still go to church at pretty high levels, but working class Christians have stopped going to church uh, in large numbers. So that in the 1950s, basically, you know, poorer and richer Christians were both basically going to church about the same numbers. The wealthier Christians are still going. It means they're still connected to these bonds of community, just like you are in your own way. People who you see on a regular basis, who know your kids, who are concerned about you, if something happens to you, you know, look out for you, help you deal with all the difficulties and traumas of life, especially in a country like the United States where the government doesn't really have a very strong welfare state. You need to rely on people, right? But what we've seen is that among, in poor communities, um, uh, that, that this has been lost a lot. And so people are, are, are more atomized, and people are, are finding a sense of community and identification often through the internet, and a sense of, 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 of kind of an identity. And you see that with these people like this guy in South Carolina and this guy in New Zealand, they're, they're finding this sense of meaning in life and identity in this, like, horrible and mythological notion of what it means to be white. Like this guy, you know, this notion that like, you know, in the Middle Ages, my ancestors fought against the marauding Muslim hordes, and now I am, you know, I am a knight today, you know, willing to put my life on line to protect my people. You know, and it, what's so sad to me is that it, there's partly a yearning for a sense of identity and community, which people need. Like that's, that's a very deep, unnecessary human uh, uh, a desire, but you're looking for it in, in all the wrong places, you know, in, 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 in kind of hateful and totally fantastical kind of ideas about who your people are. And, um, and unfortunately, these communities have really, have really grown in strength. Uh, go ahead. I think one of the implications of the whole Netanyahu thing that you were talking about on, on college age Jewish students, yeah. I have a daughter who's a junior, the son who just graduated, seems like among the Jewish students I meet on college campuses, like, it's just a given that there's not going to be any support for Israel at all. Mm -hmm. And what are the implications of that going forward? I mean, these are going to be the people yeah. at some point who APEC is going to call, they're going to say, like, what are you talking about? And right. So what do, you, what do you think that, is it true what I'm saying? And what do you think the long-term implication of that? Yeah, so I think there is a, um, outside of the Orthodox community, um, there is a, uh, I think we're seeing a pretty substantial generational change. And, and the way I would put it is this way. If you look at the people who sustained APAC and uh, a lot of American Jewish organizations uh, for many generations, they were people who were not Orthodox, not necessarily like that religiously observant, but very strongly Jewish identified, members of synagogues, involved in Jewish communal institutions. They're people I, 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 you could call secular tribalists, right? Like their religion in a way is the protection and welfare of the Jewish people, right? Um, and, by, and that comes out of a certain set of experiences, right? Um, it comes out of maybe growing up at a time when it wasn't quite, where American Jews were not quite as assimilated, where there was more social anti-Semitism. When you remember the Holocaust or your parents remember the Holocaust or or the Six-Day War, or you even just remember, as I did when I was growing up in the 1980s, the, the oppression of Soviet Jews and the movement to free Soviet Jews. All these were messages about kind of us coming together as a people to protect ourselves. And um, uh, those people's children, by and large, remain pretty secular, but are more universalistic, right? They've just grown up in a different America, an America in which the boundaries between Jews and non-Jews are much, much lower, right? You don't really have this sense of like, 
the kind of spaces that Jews would have felt uncomfortable, certain industries, certain social institutions, like that, there's just much less of that over time, right? Jews are, you know, you got, every generation passes, Jews become more fully, deeply American and less distinctive, right? And the intermarriage rate is, you know what? Among non young non-Orthodox Jews getting married today, it's north of 70%, right? So, um, so you have a highly universalistic perspective. And so um, it, even if people really couldn't care less about the Palestinians, they're just less in the game in terms of that being their focus. It's kind of like, you know, there are so many things going on in America and in the world that I could care about. Why, why focus on this, you know? Um, where you do see that the, group, the American Jewish groups are bringing in younger people tends to be within, from within the Orthodox community because the Orthodox community has grown and because of the institutions it has, you know, Jewish day schools, it, you basically are, you produce kids that are much more connected to, this, to Israel and much more connected to a kind of a more tribal sense of like, the, you know, thinking about the Jewish people as a family, this is my, our fundamental concern. And so... That, that is probably going to be the cohort that will probably, in large part, lead the American Jewish institutions, I think, in the generation or two to come. It tends to be mostly Republican. Um, but in a way, the more that happens, the more these more liberal, secular, universalist cities feel more alienated, right? Because part of their Jewish identity, to the, you know, their Jewish identity may be partly all about being a liberal and a Democrat. That's actually part of what it means to be Jewish for them, right? So, and, and so I think this is part of the... The, the challenge that we're facing. And um, I mean, I'm gonna talk about it a little bit later, but I think that um, the challenge is partly to try to tell some of these younger, more secular Jewish kids that, um, that they really do need to care about what happens, um, that, um, that what happens in Israel will have an effect on their lives um, because they are part of the Jewish people. Um, and half of the Jewish people in the world live in the state of Israel, and that their um, that their the, the very notion of what Judaism stands for and what the Jewish ethical tradition is about is at play in what happens in Israel. And so the very you know just as you, if you think about how profoundly Israel's creation transformed what we how we think about being Jewish in so many ways, that if Israel cannot figure out a way of surviving as a Jewish state without controlling millions of people who lack basic rights, if it becomes a permanent occupier of people who lack basic rights, that will have very profound impact on what Judaism means all over the world. Um, and also, it ultimately, I think, very well could mean the end of the state of Israel. Because I don't ultimately think, in the long term, Israel can survive as a country that holds ha where half of the people under its control are non-citizens living uh, without basic rights. I think ultimately it's not a sustainable proposition. So I think part of the challenge is to try to call younger American Jews to that effort and to say, you don't have to agree with your parents or with Benjamin Netanyahu in how you, in how you see these questions. But what's important is that you consider yourself part of the game, that you consider yourself part of this conversation because um, uh, among other reasons, you may think you can opt out but anti-Semites won't think you can opt out, right? You, you will be considered Jewish even if to some degree you would decide you'd rather not, right? It's not, it's not actually entirely your own choice. Um, go ahead. And don't you think maybe Israel's success yeah. is sort of its own problem in the sense that when all of us were younger, yeah. Israel's existence was tenuous and we didn't, you know, we, yes. we were identified with them and supported them yes. because we didn't know if they were gonna be. Yes, yes. Now, 
that's not really a concern yes. for our children or right. grandchildren. Right. So right. That's you know even if you can take politics out of it, yes, we're going to have certain issues and problems regarding that. Yes, I think that's exactly right. That Israel has gone from being seen as the kind of the the David versus the Goliath of the whole Arab world that you know was always ganging up on Israel and you know repeatedly massing armies to now being seen as kind of more like the Goliath often, you know, compared to the Palestinians. And that's partly because there has been a real power shift. I mean, Israel is a um, much more militarily powerful than the rest of the Arab, than its Arab neighbors. The reason it's so much more powerful is because it's so much more economically successful, right? Its economic might is built on its extraordinary economic and technological ingenuity, right? Um, and and, that has, and the, the, its Arab neighbors have been left completely in the dust. And that has created this massive power imbalance. I think the other thing, the other re thing which I think has produced a shift is that, you know, if you think about why American Jews became Zionists in the first place, right? In the first part of the 20th century, there was not a Zionist consensus in the United States, right? Zionism was a very divisive topic among American Jews and among Jews all over the world. The, 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 kind of main, the conventional orthodox position on Zionism uh, in the early part of the 20th century was there could be no Jewish state until the Messiah comes, right? That that's what the Talmud says. Um, and and, and the, the, the conventional reform position was, the reform movement said in 1885, we are a faith, we are not a nation. We have no desire to reestablish sovereignty. We, America is our Zion, right? So those were two very strong held views. Um, what happened basically is the reason that American Jews became overwhelmingly Zionist was not because they figured out these difficult ideological and theological problems. It's because of the Holocaust. It's because it became clear that the Jews of Europe were being destroyed and that the rest of the world was not going to save them, which made a pretty good argument for the need for a country of refuge, a country that had Jewish life as its mission statement. I think what's happened is that, and so even if you look at, if you look at the 1980s during the, first, during the Lebanon War, or the first intifada of the late 1980s. There were American Jews who were very, very critical of what Israel was doing. But they never, by and large, questioned the existence of a Jewish state. Because no matter how much they hated Yitzhak Shamir and what he was doing, they, they always felt that fundamentally, ultimately, we need a state where Jews can go. And, and, and this was all, you saw this well into the 1980s with the Jews from Ethiopia and the Jews from the Soviet Union coming, kind of reaffirming that narrative. I think what you see among younger American Jews is that the idea of Zionism as refuge isn't something that they identify with as much. They do know that there's some anti-Semitism, but they've never seen kind of a state-sponsored anti-Semitism leading, leading to a mass exodus of Jews going to the state of Israel. And they've never, by and large, really felt that they themselves would need that. To the contrary, they kind of feel like if they go to Israel, their parents might be worried that it's too dangerous. Right? It's kind of the, the inversion. Right? Israel is less safe than the United States. And what that means is that if they become really alienated by what Israel does, they are more likely to ask more fundamental questions about what Israel is and to say, well, well wait a second, like, why should there be a Jewish country or a Muslim country? Like, why shouldn't it just be like the United States, where basically like, everyone is equal, religion is a private thing, there's no religion in the government. And interestingly, you know, we also are in a generation where there are more Palestinian and Arab and Muslim, uh, Muslims in the United States than there were. If you go to college today, as opposed to in the 1950s or 60s, you're more likely to meet people from those areas because those communities tended to come starting really in 1965 when they opened up American immigration before. And what you see, and I've seen it before, and it's really, it's really fascinating, to, you know, interesting to watch, is that Palestinian kids will come to, the, will go to the Jewish kids, you know, and say, look, 
Listen, you're from New Jersey, I'm from New Jersey, right? In New Jersey, there's no religion in the government. Like, we all just are equal citizens, right? That's the way it should be in Israel and Palestine, too, right? Um, and especially for Americans who, who believe, young who believe in separation of church and state, there is some uh, at least curiosity, openness to the idea that, well, why not? Why not just make it a secular state with equal rights for everybody, right? What I find interestingly is that outside the Orthodox community, the young American Jews who I feel like are most attached to Zionism and most fervently committed to the idea of a Jewish state very often are the ones whose parents are not born in the United States. So uh, kids whose parents are from Russia or Iran or South Africa or Argentina, because there they have a greater firsthand familiarity with the fragility of Jewish life in the diaspora, and so their Zionism is more intense. So like among young Jews in France, you're not witnessing this phenomenon, right? The, because their experience is more precarious and more fragile. And, and so for them, the notion of why you would need a state as a refuge is not abstract. And I think one of the challenges for American Jews, even, even as I think, I think it's really important that we create an environment where young American Jewish kids can ask difficult and radical and threatening and destabilizing questions, right? Like, that's part of what our tradition is supposed to be about, right? That, like, you invite people in and you're not afraid of the conversation, even if they say things that would be considered frightening, like, why do we need a Jewish state, right? Or why do I don't feel comfortable calling myself a Zionist? Like, we need to be comfortable having that conversation. Um, but we also need to remind, I think, young American Jew Jewish kids that their experience of life is not necessarily typical of all Jews in the world, um, or Jews at all times, and they should be humble about extrapolating from their own experience to the experience of all Jews at all times. So just that they could never imagine needing to go to Israel because they felt unsafe, that doesn't mean that other Jews might not feel that way. Okay, so what I'd like to do, since we only have five minutes left, yeah. is hear all of the questions at once, and then if you want to take three or four minutes. To, yeah, please. To, to pick one that you sure. feel like responds sure. to you. Uh, do you think that Netanyahu is part of the problem in that he doesn't seem to carry out the promises vis-a-vis -vis the women of the wall, mm -hmm. granting mm -hmm. equal access to uh -huh. conservative reform, mm -hmm. Jewry, and that translates, it seems to me, to what you've been talking about, mm -hmm. this lack of respect mm -hmm. for American Jewry mm -hmm. that is not orthodox. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Please. So you mentioned about um, the black community and the yeah. black caucus. Yeah. I received a text message from MoveOn.org mm. that said, these are the people that are going to be against APAC mm. and mentioned several of the possible Democratic candidates. Yes. But I'm old enough to remember the 60s and 70s yes. when there was this, I don't know what it was, but it was this seemed purposeful division mm. between the black community yes. and the Jewish community. Yeah. And I wonder how that all mm -hmm. relates and if there's anything to that still. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, how are we to respond to a president who calls the Democratic Party the anti-Jewish, anti-Israel party? Yeah. This is kind of unprecedented party yeah. to be designated by a president anti-Jewish, of course, I just wish they would leave us alone. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, mm -hmm. how do you respond? Yeah, yeah. One more, or is there anybody else? Yeah, I'll see. I think it's, it's um, just two comments. I think it's interes
I think it's a uniquely American and, and, and I, don't, I don't know the right word, I think arrogant is maybe slightly mm. too strong, mm. but in that direction, just American concept to say that yes. every other country should be like us because we're the best country, number one. But number two, I think there's, I, I like that you're bringing that up mm. because I think that the, similar to how in American politics the discourse has been reduced to tweets and mm. sound bites, the discourse over what Israel should do Mm-hmm. or should look like, or and, and the 400-pound elephant in the room is obviously the Palestinians. Right. You know, what should happen with that, I, from what I can read, has also been reduced to, to just sound bites. And I mean, right. you know, when people just say it can't be Jewish and democratic, like, right. I just think that does right. a disservice to right. actually where we should go and right. how it should look. And right. the one thing that I think, and I'll, and I'll stop and we can talk about it later or whatever, is just, I think there is utility to Israel being Jewish. Mm. But I think there has to be a way that that can happen ethically, and it has to be nice to the strangers that live among us and, and right. all that. But, right. um, and the reason for that is because I think that we as Jews are owed the ability, and I think it will help the world, and it's happening now, mm. to, ha- to see like what does Jewish culture look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's something like there's French culture, there's you know German culture, there's American culture. Yes. Each of those contributes something to the world. Mm. We haven't had really Jewish culture mm-hmm. for you know 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you'll say, well, the difference between Jewish and Israeli and whatever. Right. But I mean, to let Jews flourish in their land, right. with the ethics and all of that. Right. Um, I, I think maybe something really good could come out of that. But right. you need some tiny sliver on yeah. the globe right. where there's a secure area where Jews can do that right. in a way that is also ethical to other people that happen to be living there. But right. no one's talking about right. that. They're just getting mad at each other right. and saying, you Right, know. right, right. Okay. Yeah. And Joni is the last just one? Just one quick um, yeah. The selective memory yeah. of forgetting all the things that were offered when we tried to mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. peace with mm-hmm. the Palestinians mm-hmm. during the Clinton administration mm-hmm. when so much was on the table mm. and they mm. were turned away. Mm. The world seems to have forgotten Gaza was returned mm. as a gone Eden and mm. look what's happened to it. Where does that come into today's discussion? Right. Yeah. And why doesn't it? So, okay, so the responsible game plan is actually now going to be to save those questions for our next session nah. and make sure we don't keep everyone else waiting. Those are great questions that we'll try to grapple with. Thank you for being our VIPs. Thank you for being our friends. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.